Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Talking At Your Arts. I am Sam Foster, and this is Hayden Jones. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we've got a really exciting episode. We've actually been keeping this one in the holster as a bit of an, an ace up a sleeve. Mm. I've mixed sayings there, but I'm just that's because I'm so excited mm, mm. about what we have for this episode. Um, a very, very special guest that we're, that we're lucky to nab by the name of Richard Norton. Um, now you may be asking, who is Richard Norton? Mm. Well, you should just uh, stop listening Google now. If yeah, you, if, get on Google. Yeah, get on Google if you don't know who it is. Uh, Richard is a legend of, uh, and that I don't use that term lightly, he is a legitimate legend. You call me legend all the time. Well, so yeah, but that's just being polite. But he's an actual legend <laughs> right. um, of fine. martial arts and film. Uh, and particularly made a, a huge career as a martial artist in films and, and pioneer in many ways of early martial arts films with the likes of Chuck Norris and Jackie Chan and uh, a whole suite of other uh, amazing martial artists that he worked with. Um, and on top of that, separate to his career in the film industry, he was also established one of the major schools of martial arts in the early days in the 70s in Australia, um, Zendikai, and um, has since become a, a, a legend, a living legend of martial arts. Yeah, and it was his, his I guess, decorated status as a, as, a, as a genuine martial artist that led him to, into the film world and then as a, a sort of a bodyguard to the stars. And he's, he's lived one of those extraordinary lives. It's like a film in itself, mm. really talking to him about his life and his experiences. Um, now, why Richard Norton? Why was he on the, our radar as, as a company running an arts podcast? Well, obviously, the aim of this podcast is to um, uh, open the minds of the people to the way creativity exists in the world around us and, and that we're all creative beings. It's innately in our human nature and, and, and it's just a matter of finding how that manifests for different people. So it's in the name Martial Artist and we wanted to interrogate that idea. Um, I first became aware of Richard Norton uh, as a as a kid, I was a bit of a martial arts fan. Uh, I idolised some of these guys like Van Damme, and and then uh, that led me into actually taking it was up the splits martial on arts. the chairs that that did it. Wasn't I it? could never get the chairs just on the ground, you know. Right. Yeah, if we had Photoshop back then, I would have put the chairs in. But mm. yeah, those for, photos are forever, forever there and remain unchanged. Mm. Um, but Richard was one of these guys that was always in, in the martial arts rags that I'd read as a kid and he was sort of one of these heroes and, and, and the founder of the martial arts I did. So I did Zendukai and he was one of, one of the founders of that and a 10th Dan and so he was a, a real icon in that world. Um, that was an insight into my teenage years, add braces and acne to that situation. Um, but Sam became aware of Richard Norton through a very, very different means and much more direct personal experience. Yeah, so I was um, I first re- met Richard um, when I started working in films as a stunt performer. So my first ever film, first major film that I did was uh, Fury Road, um, Mad Max, and I got there in rehearsals and rocked up on the first day and the fight director was Richard Norton. And I didn't, to be honest, know exactly the extent of, of what a legend Richard was and um, – hadn't done Zendukai and obviously knew about him from films and things like that. But uh, as we started training together and working together on that film, it started to become apparent just how vast his knowledge was and his experience and um, his status. But more than that, we became friends and we actually 
uh, I, I was just really impressed with him as a as a man, as a person. You know, he, his integrity, his honor, his um, his personality, and the way as a new stunt performer coming in, he didn't treat me any differently. Like he's this living legend who's done two hundred plus films, and I'm the new guy on the block, and he just talks to me like anyone else and gives me the time and day of of his knowledge and any questions that you ask. It was just really really impressive the way he conducted himself and mm. continues to conduct himself. So we've stayed in contact ever since that film and and become mates and actually he's a big reason why I got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, the first experience I had doing BJJ was training for that film. So uh, we just thought when we were talking about potential guests for this podcast, I was like, oh, maybe Richard Norton would be interested and you were like, I squealed and <laughs> you're like, really? do you think he? Do you think he might? And and there he was sitting there. So um and and look um he he's so humble um and I think like a lot of great artists he's very uh, much just a student of the art things mm. things like things like an artist and we touched on a lot of really fascinating things like um you know the art of the the craft of constructing a great fight scene and the storytelling in a great fight scene we talked about the art of improvisation and how mm. it applies to not only performance but martial arts yep. um, and combining form and technique with creative flow so there's a lot in there yeah. so don't be worried if and you're uh, not uh yeah and i was gonna say what well, and what separates what separates um martial artists from fighters yeah that was a really yeah. interesting line of combo yeah. as well but as i was saying if you're not a martial artist that's fine there's plenty in this episode that's going to be of interest to you if you, you don't have to be an artist or a martial artist to enjoy this it's just he's a, he's led a really really fascinating unique life that he goes into uh, throughout this podcast. Now, um, we did chat to Richard via Zoom, so the quality of his audio is uh, not great, but you can hear everything he's saying. Um, he was down in lockdown in Melbourne at the mm. time, and uh, he was, uh, yeah, we were fortunate enough to chat to him. It is a slightly longer episode, but we didn't want to edit anything out of it, really, because it's, it's all gold, really. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And, and the reason we're yabber, yabbering on now is we don't really get a word in sideways once Richard gets going with his stories of the, the good old days of martial arts and films. Yeah, and, and didn't want to either. It yeah. was a bit of a sit down and sit down and listen to the maestro. When, so. when he starts dropping names like Chuck Norris yeah. and, and uh, you know, and Fleetwood Mac and, uh, you know, James Taylor and you kind of go, all right, yeah. off you it's go. It's not your everyday yarn at the pub. So, um, so yeah, get into it. Um, if you're new to the podcast, uh, check, you know, this might be the first episode you've listened to. Um, you've started off on a good note, but do go back and listen to some of the previous episodes. They're all really different. They're all really with really interesting guests. Um, give us a, a, a like or a, or a, a subscribe or even even a review or a rating. Yep. And if you want to support this podcast, you can do so. We have a Patreon page uh, for this podcast that helps us to uh, pay for the production of the podcast and keep it going. So please check that out. Um, and if you have suggestions for future guests or topics that you want us to talk about, uh, send us a DM um, on our Instagram page, Shock Therapy Productions. And uh, we will go hunting for those types of interesting people. We've got some great episodes coming up in the future too, some great guests. So, um, But I think without further ado, let's, uh, let's rip straight into Talking Out Your Arts with the one, the only, Richard Norton.
Um, well, intros first, uh, Richard. Uh, yeah, thanks for joining us on Talking Out Your Arts. And um, for those who don't know you, uh, what's the quick? Give us a, give us the the quick overview of your your career of uh, from martial arts through to the film industry and and kind of how you how you've gotten into that over the last what <coughs> sixty years? Am I right? Roughly. Yes. Unfortunately, thank you for <laughs> thank you for dating me. And um, yeah, look, uh, look, it's all out there. I've been, it's been talked about a lot as far as when I've done podcasts. But I started uh, martial arts when I was eleven, and uh, started with judo. A few years later, got introduced to karate, goju, goju ryu, or goju kai karate under Tino Sabarano, who people now would probably know Kate Sabarano and Tino. Hanchitino's her father, and he's pretty much, we refer to him as the father of Australian karate. He was a Hawaiian Filipino and came out to Australia in the the middle 60s, and, you know, karate pretty much was, there there were karate schools around in those times, but not really to the forefront, obviously, as they are today. And um, I was doing judo and, you know, I always say to people when I started judo, I was pretty skinny and small. And as an 11-year-old and 12-year-old, I was getting chucked around from one end of the dojo to the other by these older teenage brown belts. And so anyway, another school friend that was doing judo with us told us about a karate demonstration a couple of miles from where I live. So I went along with him and I just remember seeing it and thinking that this is absolutely what I want to do with my life. And so I joined, you know, with Hunchitino and that started me on a journey that is still going today. Um, in the seventies, uh, Bob Jones was another uh, student of Tino. Bob Jones and I, and Bob wanted to start his own style as it were. And uh, I went with him in the seventies and still with him today. And, you know, you mentioned you were part of Zendokai in those days. And so Bob and I have had a friendship of over 55 years. And uh, as I said, we're still actively involved. And my journey took me to the U.S. in 1979. Uh, that was through being doing personal bodyguard work. And one of the artists was Linda Ronstadt, who a lot of the younger ones might not no, but Linda was as big as Beyonce in her day. I think she won 11 or 12 uh, Grammys, and she wanted me to go and work for her full-time in the U.S. I was a bit reluctant, but I took off in 1979, and thank God I did, because I can't imagine what my life would have been had I not gone, at least from an experience point of view. And uh, when I got to the States, the first person I called was Chuck Norris, and let me go back a little bit. In 78, uh, Bob had gone to the U.S., looking around at different martial artists and met Chuck Norris and invited him to come out to Australia in uh, 78. So I ended up doing martial arts demonstrations on the same card as Chuck. You know, Chuck was demonstrating his form of martial arts and also promoting some of his earlier martial arts movies like Good Guys Wear Black and Breaker Breaker. But anyway, Chuck and I really hit it off and cut to 79 when I went to California I called Chuck and started training with him every day at his house. And through that, uh, through Chuck being so well-respected, so well-known in the US, um, 
I got introduced to people like Benny the Jet, Okides, and Tadashi Yamashita, Bill Wallace, uh, Pete Sugarfoot Cunningham. There were just a multitude of martial artists that I got to meet through, I guess, my, my friendship with Chuck. And so that started me onto a whole new world of learning in areas that I could never have had had I stayed in Australia at that time. And, you know, people got to remember back then we didn't even have, when I started, we didn't even have uh, videos, you know, and cassettes and everything. We certainly didn't have the internet and the access to all the information that's available now. So they're really the only ways to actually go and train with actual real life people, as opposed to, you know, getting them on YouTube and learning in yes. way. So I, I was very fortunate, have, you know, one-on-one -on -one training with some of the best in the world. And, and, uh, and was that your first time exposure to those different styles as well? Like yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like there was a guy, Fumio Demura. I remember Bob showing, uh, coming back with tapes of Fumio Demura. He used to do traditional martial art demonstrations at a place called Deer Park, which is very near uh, Disneyland in Anaheim. And we were looking at these demos and thought he was the most amazing, you know, person we'd seen. So again, to, to actually get to LA and get to train with him, you know, I would drive out for years. I would drive out nearly every day and train with Sensei Demura on the weekends. And, uh, you know, I went to, to Memphis. I lived with Bill Wallace for a little while and just helped him prepare for a couple of his uh, fights. Benny the Jet Okidas, I trained with Sensei Benny. Um, for those who don't know, Benny is a kickboxing legend. He had an undefeated kickboxing record. And uh, this was before he started the Jet Center, which became a, just a famous, famous sort of center with incredible, incredibly skilled boxers, kickboxers, martial artists of all types. And was Benny still fighting when you met him, when you were training yeah. with him? And was he in the middle yeah. of his career? Yes, he was. No, it was more toward the end, but definitely in the, still fighting. And in fact, you know, I went with uh, Chuck Norris. Went, Chuck and I went into Vinny's uh, sort of swan song fights, you know, that he had. And um, I became very good friends with Benny, still very good friends with Benny. Mm. And I, I, you know, again, you, you, you can just imagine training with people of that caliber. And I also, that's where I met uh, Peter Cunningham, who at seven world titles, undefeated kickboxing record, got to train with Benny and I still train with Benny some 30, 30 plus years later. So it was an incredible melting pot being in California. As I said, of being able to train with the best people in the world. I was still, by the way, doing personal bodyguard work. I was working with Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor. Fleetwood Mac, you know, Stevie Nicks when she went out solo. But when I wasn't on tour, all I was doing was just traveling multiple, multiple miles each day to be able to train with these amazing martial and, arts. And do you feel like at that time in, in LA in particular, was there something special happening in terms of the people that were around and the, the martial artists that were there? Like retrospectively, do you look back at that phase of of LA and, and, and kind of pinch yourself and go, it's extraordinary that there was all these amazing artists from different disciplines in the one place at the one time. Oh no, absolutely. And it, and it still is kind of like that, that, you know, because as I said, Chuck Norris was based there. Benny was based there. Fumio was based there and Bong Suhan, you know, Hapkido master. There were, there were so many people. I'm not sure whether, 
why particularly they gravitated to California, but that's what it was. And sure, there were there are other amazing martial artists over in the East Coast of America and Central America and everything like that, you know, in the Midwest. But I just felt there was no better place to be for me than in California. And by the way, it was a bit of a, it was interesting contrast for me because in my early years of martial arts, through doing a very traditional style of martial arts, albeit Japanese as opposed to more of an Okinawan version, I was still very much into the Japanese style and Zen, you know, I bought a book on Zen and Japanese culture, which became my Bible early on and kind of still is, you know, it was written by DT Suzuki and it was, it was all about the mind, you know, where the mind of the samurai would be or the martial arts would be, not just on the physical, but on the mental and the spiritual. So I was very drawn to all things Japanese. Mm. I did end up going to Japan quite a bit. Um, some of it through touring with the bands gave me the opportunity to go to Tokyo and, and um, Osaka and things like that. But I guess I'm saying that that's where my, my I, I think when I thought about martial arts, I kept thinking Japan, that's where the knowledge was. And it was actually Bob that kept saying, look, there's an incredible pool of knowledge in the US, you know, which I wasn't as drawn to until I got there, until I got to train with some of the people that I did. And I, I, I guess I realized that knowledge is everywhere, you know, so there's some amazing people almost wherever one happens to be. And really it gets down to the desire you have, you know, to, to find these people and to sort of try and access this knowledge. Um, and so on, amazing. On that question of desire, um, I guess segueing from there, so you're there as a martial artist, you're there doing the bodyguarding uh, for these famous uh, musicians. And then was there a, ever a desire to get into film? How did that sort of come about? Was that a, was that a desire or was that more accidental? No, it, it just happened as a, it just happened. You know, I, you know, when I went to the States, I had no desire to get into movies. You know, it was not even on my radar. Although in 19, I would I think it's about 1976, I did do a movie called Last of the Knucklemen, which had a, a wonderful cast of Australian actors, um, Michael Caton and, and, uh, different people, but that was in, in the Outback Australia in Andamooka, an open mining town. And I was doubling an actor uh, in a fight scene that I did with uh, Steve Rackman, an ex-WWF, what it was then, now WWE wrestler. And people would recognize Steve Rackman as Donk in the Crocodile Dundee movies, you know? Hey, Mick, get stuffed, you know, he had no teeth and a crew cut. And I ended up doing a fight scene with him. So I, I had, that was the only movie I had done, but I, it still wasn't enough to make me feel, oh, this is what I want to do. But of course, having gone to the US and started tra training with Chuck Norris, Chuck was in pre-production for a film called The Octagon, which is one of the very early, early movies that kind of involved ninja and aspects like that. And because Chuck knew I could handle Okinawan weapons and, you know, versed in karate, he asked me if I would consider playing his nemesis in the octagon 
which was a character called Keo. And Keo ended up with a crimson head mask on and everything else because technically the character is supposed to be Asian because he was the henchman to this character Sakura played by another martial arts master called Tamashi, uh, Tadashi Yamashita. And so I ended up playing this character. I also played a role where you could see who I was and four of us also did all the ninja work throughout the movies and just to laugh because anytime anyone went splat or got killed, I'd say, well, that's probably me, you know? <laughs> and I, I got killed eight times in Octagon, I think I counted. So one more time could have been it for me. But it was during Octagon that I was, you know, working on, on meeting the most amazing martial artists like Tadashi and uh, Philip and Simon Rhee, who were taekwondo or korean martial artists you know and who are also now very heavy into film and production and choreography and everything else but i remember being aware of being around these amazing people thinking how good is this you know i'm i'm actually getting to use my passion which is martial arts and get paid for it and uh this is what a great way to sort of uh, make a living and and that's where i got the the bug to go on with not so much a career in film, but at least look at film as a way, as an economic means to sort of get enough money to go and still spend enough time in the local dojos and learn as much as I could as being a martial artist. And, you know, I, um, I, I think, um, you know, and Sam and I were talking about this a little while ago on the phone that I look back and I think about my career in film when I look back in hindsight, I realized that I didn't have the same passion for film that I do did for as being a martial artist. And I think it was, again, a ways for me to survive, you know, as a martial artist, because anyone involved in martial arts knows it's pretty hard to make a living just doing martial arts, especially if you stay true to your principles, you know. Mm. In other words, you don't open a school and everything purely for economic gain because I find a lot of people that when they do that they tend to compromise their principles you know i.e they'll award rank a lot quicker they'll appease students egos really to make them comfortable enough to stay an extra month and pay another month's fees because mm. there's all the overheads whereas me making a living from doing movies meant I didn't have to compromise in any way shape or form with the way that I felt martial arts should be taught, mm. you know. Um, and you I, and the, sorry, yes. I was just going to ask you, like, through the, um, you know, you say you sort of fell into film, and uh, I guess through the 60s and 70s, there seemed to be a kind of an explosion of, of martial arts and martial arts film in popular Western culture. And I was wondering how much you sort of uh, attribute that to a sort of post-Bruce Lee era you know kind of linking that idea of martial arts films and 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 movie stardom in the west and whether there was a sense at the time that you know these studios were kind of had the feelers out and were kind of looking for the next big martial arts star i don't think so much when i got into it because you had you know obviously at bruce lee uh end of the dragon particularly even though Game of Death, there were a few films earlier and some Chinese films that Bruce was in that if, if you're a martial artist, you're aware of. And of course you watched and everything like that, but they, they hadn't hit the mainstream. End of the Dragon 
was really such a key turning point for for the general public's appreciation of martial arts, you know, as depicted on film. Um, but I think Chuck Norris was probably one of the first Westerners to really, you know, take that that model that Bruce had created, and you know, he was blonde and American and everything else mm -hmm. as opposed to Asian. And so that started a whole new interest in the idea of martial arts on film being economically viable from a production point of view. Um, was that driven by Chuck himself or more and more the producers and the studios that were driving that, like the the content, or was, or was he sort of kind of actively pushing that he thought that there was something in this? No, it, I think it's always driven by studios and production houses, you know, as you as an individual, unless you're wealthy and able to produce your own product, you're kind of at the, the mercy of the studios, you know, and studios and some, you know, smaller production companies. In fact, it was more the smaller um, production companies that really followed. They saw it as a niche for videos, you know, a lot of, yeah, it, right. a lot of martial arts movies went to the video stores. As we remember way back then, there were mum and pop video stores in every corner and you'd go and mm -hmm. rent a little action movie if you were someone like me. Um, you know, of course, cut to now and martial arts has changed in its, in its depiction in the Marvel films or the DC comic films and everything. It's definitely martial arts, but it's more, it's a far bigger expression of action than just purely martial arts, although, again, martial arts is an integral part of that kind of action. But back then, you know, it went to a whole stage. You started with the Chuck Norris type movies, which went into Vietnam type movies and ninja movies and eventually mixed martial arts on film. And, uh, you know, I guess they, you know, they realised that there was an incredible market out there. Look at Jason Statham or Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan was doing movies, you know, well, how long ago? You know, he was in Enter the Dragon. He was already working as a stunt person, ended up creating his own career, especially with Bruce's passing. More of a comedic kind of expression of martial arts. Mm. But even that took a little while to catch on. You know, you had Rumble in the Bronx, was probably one of the first ones that caught the attention of the American audiences. And people were like, oh, wow, look at this. This is, this is fantastic. And... It's all economics. If, mm. if Rumble in the Bronx and a few of those hadn't made money, it wouldn't have continued. I don't mm. care what people say. Um, but that created a market. And once that happened, then you, you had an avenue for different martial artists to, to actually get careers. People like myself, you know, I, I'm not being self-deprecating, but I just did low-budget, you know, what we call B martial art movies, you know, in the Philippines and Thailand and all over the world. And... You know, but they still served a purpose. You know, there were there are smaller budget budgets that enabled us to do three, four, five of these each year, and to satisfy a market, which is the video market, eventually becoming the DVD market. And you know, one would look at a lot of the films that are ending up on Netflix and everything else. So many of them are very low budget, not unlike what we did back then. And now it's the streaming market, you know. So it's all it's all economics. It's all supply and demand, and everything that creates a an avenue for people like myself back then, and obviously the younger ones that we see today, like Tony Jaa or Michael J. White, or um, you know, there's there's 
there's just a whole slew of people coming through with incredible talent. Mm. And it's interesting that you said uh, when we were chatting the other day, Richard, that like you felt going back to that idea of you being your passion that had you had more of that passion for acting and, and being the film star that you probably would have potentially pursued that harder in a way to become, you know, to, to kind of transition from those, those uh, films that you were doing mainly as a way to economically support yourself so you could keep training martial arts and, and travelling and doing what your passion was. Is that, is that kind of... Is that how you feel about it now, like when you look back? Yeah, I do, Sam, but I I do say that had I wanted to, you know, meaning that, uh, you know, my acting, you know, we talk about, like, learning about acting, you know, I I had no experience, obviously, in Octagon, and I always laughed that the first, as the character Longlegs, who, not Keo, because Keo just sort of, his heavy breathing throughout the whole thing, you know, became like the martial arts Darth Vader. But as the character, I remember my first line was sit down. And I, in my head, I'm going through, okay, sit down is a bit of other dialect, like you go when he tells you you can, you know, normal shit. But I remember sit down, sit down into my own head. I think, oh, God, this is easy, you know. And suddenly I'm up there on set with 50 people looking at you, the director, producer and other people and the pressure's on and you hear, okay, you know, roll sound, you know, roll camera and action. And suddenly I was aware that there was 20 different ways I could say sit down. Like it goes, (laughs) sit down, sit down. And I'm like, oh, fuck, there's a lot more to this than meets the eye, which basically prompted me to take up acting lessons. I ended up taking lessons very regularly with a lady called Zena Provendy who was Chuck Norris's acting coach. And I went in because I just realized to, that to be proficient in acting was a bit like martial arts. You, you needed training. You needed to understand the craft of acting uh, in a whole way, different way to, than what I thought was involved. And so I did lessons and started to just learn. But to answer your question, when I look at my career, Zena was the one that said to me, look, Richard, you need to start saying no to some of these smaller action films that I was doing with people like Roger Corman in the Philippines and Thailands and and start to hold out for better roles in bigger productions. And I think there was a couple of things. Back then, I always thought, as a lot of us did, that we're getting into those action films that the next job is probably the last, so you're too scared to say no, you know, because... We probably didn't have the confidence to think that if we held out that that bigger role would be there. Mm. Having said that, in hindsight, when I look back, I also realized that I just didn't have the passion for acting that I did for martial arts. And if I did, I would have been in acting classes just as much as I was on the dojo floor Mm. learning martial arts. So I was really doing it as a means to become adequate and... I think I was adequate in my acting, certainly, you know, not of any, an amazing level of acting that I see, you know, some of the, some of the actual stars have, but it was enough to get by. And I was satisfied with that because again, my passion was still martial arts. Mm. I just, I just wanted to be the best martial artist I could be. And, you know, a lot would say there's a lot better than me and there's a lot not as good as me. It didn't matter. It was about just being the best I could be with my expression of martial arts. And again, acting was, I just didn't have the same passion for acting as I did for my martial arts. Hence a career of 80 movies or so that 
you know, a lot of them I wouldn't even want to see again, let alone somebody <laughs> you know, but, but that's okay. I, I, I'm happy with that because of the journey I had and the people I met and the other amazing martial artists that I met. Totally that environment yeah amazing career nonetheless and you've also obviously choreographed um you know aside from starring in films choreographed many many films and just interested in like what what to you makes a really great fight scene because i imagine i guess an actual fighting situation and 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 a fight scene on a film are two different things and and sort of what's your approach and what do you think makes like a an iconic fight fight scene like the one you did in the octagon Oh, look, it's it's not that difficult in that, you know, I would sort of go back to George Miller, you know, when, when Sam was there, when we worked with uh, Dr. George on Mad Max, he reminded us all that every every bit of action has to be related to story and character. Meaning that when I was doing films, you know, in the 80s and 90s, back then we knew that as long as you had like six fights, you could sell it. You could sell the movie to all these European markets and everything else, regardless of whether there was any real drama or story. All of that changed, and it changed by the mere fact that people just get bored. You know, when when martial arts first was depicted on film, there was enough newness to what we did that would keep people kind of, um, you know, involved in the film, you know, regardless, as I said, of story or drama. But... And I think Nowadays, they were just also physically impressed with the physicality they'd never seen. Most people hadn't seen anything like that. If they weren't a martial artist themselves, they're seeing this stuff going, wow, I'm just appreciating the sheer physicality of these performers. And I, so it's sort of that was satis- that probably satisfies that uh, for a long time there was, there was just that appreciation of the physical form in the same way that they'd watch sport or something like that. But I think you're right. No, exactly. It's, it's evolved. And, and- and that, that, that was enough to keep them interested enough to watch the film. And that's my point. But after a certain while, you know, you get, you get a little fatigued because if, you know, it's like if I like to talk about the early, say, Steven Seagal movies. You know, when you first saw Aiki on film, nobody had seen Aikido techniques on film the way he was doing them with guys, just a guy standing with his hands down, not shaping up, mm. guys flipping through the air, you know. He used a, you know, some of his own Aikido students to be able to do that. But it was so new, people were like, oh, my God, look at this, you know. Cut to two or three movies later, the action was still good and still the same, but audiences get bored. They go, well, I've seen that. What else can you do? Well, can you kick and can you punch? And... And that's what I mean about watching an action film. Once you've seen enough of it, that's no longer enough. So now you actually have to have a story and you have to have a reason for the fights. And this is what I say with, with George, every, every bit of choreography in Fury Road had to be related to story and character. You know, if you choreographed a piece of action for George, you have to justify every beat. Like what with Charlize, as I'd mm. say, why is she using, why is she punching? Why wouldn't she use an open hand? She's a female. And why is that person not involved? Blah, 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 blah. And you have to, you have to justify every move. And it was all about story. You know, again, when we, we did them, as I said, you'd have drama, 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 or what's little drama, but anyway, drama, <laughs> drama, drama, drama stops. And then you have an action sequence which had no relation to the drama or the story, and then the drama continued. But 
nowadays we refer to it as non-verbal dialogue. In other words, all the action is part of the story. There's a reason for the action beginning. There's a reason for that character engaging in violence of whatever form. And you needed that to be a part of that storytelling. And so the drama within the fight, I think, is the most important thing that needs to be considered. I even look at a lot of the Marvel, and people hate me for this, it's not that it's not amazingly well choreographed and executed, but I, I refer to a lot of the things in my mind as being just way too clinical, meaning that the scenes have got so many tricks in them, you know, and flips and carry on and everything like that. And it's about physical expertise, but it's so clinical because a lot of it's done by stunt doubles as opposed to the actors. And it's almost too perfect. And anyone that's ever been in a real fight, unfortunately, like I have, the one thing you learn is fights are anything but perfect. They're messy. They're untidy. They're, they're all over the shop. And so when I see a fight scene, it's so perfectly executed and clinical, I just go, well, I don't believe this anymore. I buy out of it. Mm. Um, and so also getting back to George, George would, was also very adamant that any move in any fight should not be done because it looks pretty. He didn't want somebody flipping a weapon around and everything because it kind of looked good. In other words, you can imagine if you had a weapon in a fight, you wouldn't be flipping around with the wrist that you're going to drop the damn thing because that's what you needed. So you tend to hang on to it and you'd make it a very practical extension of your empty hand technique. So that became very logical, you know, and, and that, you know, when you look at some of the fights that we do today, especially with Guy Norris, who you guys know I've been with Guy so long, part of the... Part of our aim is to always try to get to the point where the actor can do 80, 90 or even more percent of the fight themselves. Uh, it's such a difference. I, I remember on Fury Road when we did the fight with the Duff fight with Tom and I'd rehearsed it up with Jacob and, you know, it was, it's all tight and I was doubling for, the, for, the, for Coma for that fight and, you know, it's super tight with choreo with Jacob and we got all these timings and then Tom jumps in and it was wild. It was totally wild. And he was—he had this rawness about him. And I'm, I'm hanging onto his back going, fucking hell, anything could happen here. This is like <laughs> I, I, had to, I had to be really onto it. And, but, it but it looked so dynamic on camera. And he, he obviously knew he had such an amazing, you know, and, and no, uh, nothing against Jacob, who's also a fantastic performer and understands camera and an actor in his own right as well. But, but Tom just went to another level um, not necessarily physically as as precise perhaps but but in terms of performance and story and drama what you're talking about you know he took it to a whole nother level and and that was my first direct experience of exactly what you're talking about where you you see the difference between how an actor interprets what's going on here and and he was kind of really curious about the logic of like well why would I do that like every move had to make sense to him so not just George as the director but it was interesting hearing Tom kind of go, I, I need to know the logic for why would I, why would I do that? Why wouldn't I just punch him in the face there? And, and uh, yeah, he, he had a really good awareness about that kind of stuff because he was coming yeah, from, I, from an actor's brain, I guess. Yeah, and, I, and I, in, in my mind with, you know, what limited knowledge I have of acting is that George and Tom were very similar in the way they would break down a scene. I think you remember there was a time when George went 
I don't think he spent two hours going through every beat of that um, tanker fight with Charlize and Tom. Yeah. Cut to the actual day of shooting, and then Tom spends another two hours going through every beat, trying to justify, well, why is that one of the wives over there? Why isn't she here? Why isn't she looking this way? Blah, 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 blah. In other words, every beat had to be justified in his mind. And... You know, it, which was fascinating because, again, it reminded me of the sort of thought and everything that should and could go into an action scene to make it what it is. And then you have, as you said, Charlize and Tom, who were not trained martial arts or not trained specifically in action, delivering their version of the action in their interpretation of the storytelling, you know, of, of their character. like. I thought it was very interesting. It was it was interesting to me the different take that different actors have and, and the way they apply their craft because you said Tom goes through every beat, you know, every moment had to be justified. Charlize has a very simple, uh, that's, I'm probably using the wrong word, a simple approach in that she just looks at that, looked at that scene and said, look, what do I want out of this scene? I just want to fucking kill him just roll the cameras and yeah. let's shoot it. It's more about a motiva- an overall Very motivation. Want. Yeah, where Tom's a lot more method in his acting. And by the way, it you know, everybody has to find their way of working. Charlize, it obviously worked for her. You know, she's, mm. you know, such an award-winning actress. And the same Tom brought his own brand of in- intensive sort of expression onto the screen and it, and it all worked. And uh that, that was very interesting, again, though, to learn about an action scene, as I said. I, what, what I think you were talking about, Sam, with Tom, is just this frenetic, almost out-of-control energy that he brought to a fight, which for me is more like a real fighting anyway. As I said, you yeah. look at, you know, you can go to any boxing gym and you see guys that look amazing on the mitts and on the bag and think, oh, God, how good is this guy? Cut to his first fight. And suddenly it all goes to shit. He's all over the shop because of adrenaline, because of fear, because of nervousness and tension, you know, whereas a professional will go in and still look just as good. But it takes a while to get to that point. And, um, you know, but, but street fights are the same. I've seen amazingly talented martial artists just get absolutely slaughtered in their first encounters in the street just because it's a different environment, you know, mm. that they're in and there's nothing predictable. It's, you know, and we're getting into a whole long-winded conversation here. The biggest thing with acting and doing a fight that I try and tell and get across to the people that I work with is that when you learn a fight scene from a movie, everything is predictable. It's not improv. You can't improv a fight for the reasons of safety, for coverage, for continuity. So every move has to be worked out and then you rehearse it. And and hopefully, depending on the budget, you get weeks of rehearsal time, low budget. Sometimes you do it on the day. But anyway, you get to rehearse it. The problem then becomes when you actually put it on camera, it has to be and needs to be as though for the first time. It's a bit like drama. When you learn lines as an actor, you learn the lines, you learn every word, you do your subtext, you do your backstory. But when it comes to delivering and and listening to lines, you have to do it as though for the first time. You can't go in as the actor. The actor, as they said, knows what the character is going to do next, but the character doesn't know. 
He's hearing that dialogue for the first time. He's listening and then he's reacting to that dialogue in order to make it spontaneous and real. Otherwise, you end up sounding like a parrot. You, you're just mm. reciting lines, you know. Well, fighting is the same. When you're doing, say, a shootout, you know, in a film and you've rehearsed everything, it's very easy to get used to almost not even look and point the gun. But if you think if it was happening for real, you would have to look, you would have to have neurological relay. Oh, shit, there's a bad person over there pointing a gun at me. I now have to respond. And then comes the physical action. That's what would happen if you didn't know what was going to happen. That's a very, very hard thing to get into a fight scene again is to execute it spontaneously as though you have no idea what your next move is going to be. And real fighting's like that. If I get into a street fight, I have no idea whether the person's going to punch me with the left hand or right hand's going to knee me, headbutt me or whatever. So my awareness has to be such that I'm very in the moment and able to respond and react to that action that the other person gives you. And again, think about a, a choreographed fight. You know, you know every move because you've just done it for weeks. To throw that out and just be spontaneous in the way that you perform that fight, that's, that's a difficult thing. And is that what we, we, were, ch- we were chatting about, you know, that, that kind of there's a lot of talk about flow state, you know, as, a, as an idea of finding whether it's an athlete or, or an actor on stage or, or on camera, finding that ultimate uh, flow state that they're in. And Hayden and I were chatting yesterday on our drive back from North Queensland about this, this kind of this balance between uh, training and structure that comes with both acting and martial arts versus what you're talking about and, and that spontaneity in the moment and that presence and that awareness that is, has to be sort of an expansive awareness. Uh, well, there's a, there's a, in terms of rehearse performing in acting, there's a saying that, you know, you have to learn technique and then you have to learn how to hide technique in order to make it feel natural. And for us, you know, we'll do the same show hundreds or thousands of times and that becomes the challenge is to make it look natural. But when it applies to sort of improvisation... You know, this idea of, um, I guess, having a skill set and then getting into a zone where you can be adaptable without having to necessarily think too much. I imagine that apply, applies to sort of martial arts if we take it from the from the film set to the dojo or to the street as you're talking about, you know. Can you speak a little bit to that, that mindset? Yeah, look... Um it's it's a hard, I think you know this just gets back to what we said earlier that that the aim is to try and get the actor or the actress to be able to perform their own fights because you know you know I was lucky enough as you know to work with someone like Margot Robbie who's just amazing you know and it became quite easy to relay what we just talked about about the spontaneity about throwing the technique out and just being in the moment with the fight scene, mainly because she's so intelligent, so smart, and such a good actress that she could easily sort of relate that to a fight, you know? That, you know, I I would, there was a lot of things that we used to take from martial arts, even with Margot, you know, we'd teach her what we call autogenic or combat breathing, which is really just a method that special forces, SWAT and everything and and military introduced into their training. And it was a way to sort of allay this adrenal stress, you know, that 
if you're going into a life or death situation, you could sometimes get heartbeats of around 200 beats a minute. And the problem with elevated heart rates is that you lose what we call complex and uh, motor skills, you know, when you're left with what we call gross motor skills. And that's mainly because the blood is drained from what the body sees as non-essential parts of the body. And it drives the blood into the major muscle groups like the thigh muscles and everything else in order for you to either run like a crazy person, you know, or fight like a caged animal. And these elevated sort of stress levels and everything really inhibit performance, you know. So I, even with when we would start a long uh, fight scene in the last Suicide Squad with Margot, Margo, I'd just have her just do the four breaths in, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. You only need to do it three or four times. And it's scientifically been shown to just bring that heart rate down to a manageable level where you could access the cognitive part of your brain, you know, you can control your stress levels and everything and perform far more efficiently because you're not battling stress and stress hormones and adrenal dump. And I thought that was interesting to be able to bring that in. And again, with someone like Margot or, or a Scarlett Johansson, they're, they're so intelligent and smart with their craft that they're able to take that sort of, those lessons on board and able to actually perform in an action scene, even though action is not really what they do, you know. Um, it's interesting, those breathing techniques exist. As you know, I'm a yoga practitioner as well. And and the, what you just described is is uh, pranayama. It's a, it's a whole form of yoga practice, a dedicated, you know, uh, breathing techniques. And there's a whole, a whole range and a whole science behind that as well. And it's interesting that that's applicable in these real world situations that you're talking about as well. Well, 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 you would know, Sam, you know, everybody thinks getting in front of the camera, oh, it's easy, you know, because in their own head, they, they're Academy Award winning actors, a bit like I was before my first line in Octagon. But, you know, suddenly you get on a set, it's stressful, you know, because, you know, if you're the lead, if you're a Scarlet or a, or a Will Smith, one, there's a lot of expectation, you know, with you're being paid a lot of money to look amazing and suddenly you're doing a fight scene that's so complex in its choreography and everything. I don't care who you are. That's stressful, Mm. you know? And so it's, it's very much like being in combat, you know, it's like, gee, am I going to be good enough? All the negative thought comes in. Will I fuck it up? Will I punch one of my co-stars or whatever? All of that comes in. So, so that combat mindset, it's, it exists in that environment. It's different you know, where it's an actual life or death situation in the street, but this this parallels, you know. Mm. So hence taking something like combat or autodrenic breathing into their realm, I think is it's totally valid, you know. And yeah. I I just find, you know, it it worked really well for the people that I was working with in order for them to just again bring that pulse down to a manageable rate and 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 be cognitive, you know, because Anyone who's been in a real fight, you know, this is where the freeze syndrome came from, is extreme fear, you know, when you go back to primitive caveman days when the saber-toothed tiger got jumped out, basically you mean, you're taught to just freeze because movement would make you prey, especially if you ran away and the animal would chase you. I think that's still inbuilt even today. The problem with freezing is it's not a very good sort of uh, action or reaction to have when somebody's about to punch your head in, you know. You need to sort of be able to move and go into defensive posture, whether it's running away or, or fighting back. 
And so it's it's just in building. Breath control has been shown to absolutely be able to allay that natural inbuilt sort of physiological reaction that's that's been there for, for thousands of years within human beings. And um, as I said, to bring some of that martial arts training and be able to apply it on set is, is fascinating. Mm. You know? Just in terms of that... Um I guess that internal dialogue that happens in a real fight situation, or even if you're just having having a role in a in a training session, you know, h- how much conscious decision making do you find you you do, or do you f- do you find that it's sort of it's about the preparation and and it happens autonomously that you're able to apply your skills and make the right decision in the moment? Are you talking about on film? Fights? No, no, talking now about uh, in an actual. Either actual an actual fight situation or a or a training a sparring session a situation where it is unpredictable it's unscripted and you have to adapt and make decisions in the moment. What's what's the how much internal dialogue happens or or do you find it's the I guess the Bruce Lee thing you know when I don't hit it, it hits all by itself. I I think that it's what you mentioned. I think it's down to preparation. Napoleon you know said that. Confidence is a factor of preparation, and he was referring to war, meaning that the more prepared you are for combat, the better you'll you'll kind of respond and everything else. And, you know, there's a couple of different areas here. You know, with film, you, you as I said, you can't improv it. It is prearranged, you know, it's choreographed, same as dialogue. You know, dialogue is off a page of a script. You have to learn it. You learn on the words. You do all that. And then when you deliver it, it's supposed to be as though for the first time. Fight choreography is the same. As I said, you can't you can't have an actor throw a hook punch to the head when he's meant to throw it to the body because your partner's blocking down here mm. and suddenly he gets hit in the head. In fact, there was a good example of that when I did The Condemned with Stone Cold Steve Austin, did the fight choreography for that. It was a film we shot up in Queensland, and I remember um, there was a New Zealand actor that had a fight with Steve. You know, I choreographed a, a punch to the ribs followed with a hook to the head, you know. Steve's come down from behind a rock. Anyway, that's all choreographed. And on action, you know, Steve sort of does this because he's expecting a hook to the rib. Instead, the actor suddenly forgets about the body shot goes straight to the head, smacks Steve in the eye. Steve's eye turns black almost immediately. And we're like, oh, my God. You know, it's an example of what happens when you don't follow the choreography because that you That guy had a short career, I'm assuming. Shit. Well, <laughs> you know, fight choreography, you know, it's, it's, it's has to be predictable. It's got to be like dancing with the stars. You have to understand the moves and work in concert with your partner. Otherwise... People get hurt. Not only do people get hurt, but as you, as you know, when you film a site fights and you might do a master shot of a fight, and then you go and you do over shoulder coverage and you do inserts. Well, that has to be the same each time. Otherwise, it's never going to cut together. So again, it's all got to be predictable. So you need to be prepared for that by understanding choreography. Now, cut to real fighting. The preparation comes into knowing how to throw a punch or a kick, knowing how to put power into that punch or kick, and knowing how to make it work, knowing how to escape a headlock should you get caught or whatever. The difference is, though, in a real fight, you have no idea of what that move is going to be that you're reacting to. So your mindset has to be one of a completely relaxed mental state where you're able to 
see, you know, use your peripheral awareness to be able to see the whole of the body of the opponent. You're also peripherally aware of possible other people that could jump into that situation if you're in a bit of a crowd, like in a club or outside a bar. So there's a whole different set of variations that, that determine whether you survive that street fight or not. But still, I believe you have to be prepared for that. You have to know what, you know, what, what, fear feels like, what the adrenaline, what it does to your system. When you're standing there in the pre-fight and you got a bit of a shake in the legs and your stomach's churning and your negativity is, fucking hell, what if I get my head punched in in front of everybody or what if I end up in hospital worse? You have to deal with all of that. I believe your prep, preparation in the gym, in the dojo, in the boxing ring is what prepares you for that particular onslaught of mental and physical sort of uh, situations that are going to hit you like, you know, like they're just going to flood your system. And this is where, say, in boxing, you know, boxers are very good or probably very well prepared a lot of times for the street because all they do is hit each other and get hit. You know, you're actual, you're feeling pain, you're healing, you're feeling the fatigue of doing three, four, five or ten rounds, you know, which is very different from a lot of traditional martial artists who... In, here's me, you know. I'm, I mean, I love the traditional arts, but it's quite a, a quite a certain degree of traditional martial arts is theoretical, you know, which mm. is very different again from kickboxing, where you're actually getting punched and kicked, or you're kicking and punching somebody else. So it's very real, you know. You can theorize all you like, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu is the same too. It's a mission grappling. When you roll with somebody, you're either tapping somebody else or you're getting tapped off. Out And you can theorize all you like about what happened and why it happened. It either did or it didn't. Again, that's very different to film fighting. Mm. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, so, yeah it does make sense. And, and, it, and it's a whole different era. But, but again, I would, sorry, just to finish, that it's, it's about how well prepared you are, hence Napoleon saying, you know, you need to know what pain feels like. You need to know your endurance level. How do you have anaerobic and aerobic fitness, you know? What if the fight goes more than a minute and everything and you're huff, huffing and puffing? Do I have the stamina in order to be able to deliver my punches and kicks with power and with meaning? And I think the training is, is hopefully where you find a lot of that out, albeit it'll never be the same as the real street fight yeah. where there's no referee, there's no consensual aspect to the, to the fight. Mm. There could be three or four, and when they knock you down, they're probably going to keep jumping all over your head, you mm. know. Mm. Nobody's going to say yeah. stop, break, get into your corner, which boxing, mm. MMA, judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's all what I call consensual sparring. Mm. Yes, it's con confronting, but there's still rules, there's still limitations, there's still mats. You understand? Yeah, so totally. It's a and different environment to the real. I fight. remember once someone told me in uh, <clears throat> acting early on when I was acting, saying proper preparation prevents piss poor performance. I always remembered that saying, and it's exactly that Napoleon quote as well. It's like if you're if you're well prepared, if you have done the work, then really there's very little to be nervous about when you go. You know, we perform uh, a lot and, and when we know these shows so intimately and we've rehearsed and we've done the hours and hours and hours in the rehearsal room, then really for me when yeah, I go on stage now, I'm excited. I, I have to actually calm my excitement, not my nerves. I'm not nervous. I'm excited and, 
and I have to go, okay, keep the excitement level down because that can have a similar effect in terms of adrenaline. And yeah, and I think, I think you know, like for me, I still, I still get nervous at times with performing, but I think the experience thing, like you're talking about in preparation, is sort of, you know, you learn how to deal with the nerves and you do see both in actors and in, you know, street fight situations when people, they get caught up in that adrenaline and then, you know, 60 seconds later you see the adrenaline dump and they can't hardly throw a punch or they can't hardly uh, remember the next line because they've just been overwhelmed. This whole system has been overwhelmed. Yeah, and I think the only way you get over that is by the doing. You just do it mm. enough, mm. you know, where you've come better at it. And, you know, we were talking about that flow state, which I think is is fascinating. And, you know, this is where the parallels with martial arts. When you, when you do martial arts, you learn very basic fundamental blocks. You learn basic punches. Boxing would be the same. You learn the footwork, you know, and, and that's part of the, the process of, of learning your craft, you know, and eventually you learn Carter and you learn forms that you're taught. But when you spar, again, you have to throw all that out. Now you just react. Well, you think about acting, you go to acting class and you learn your lines, you learn your subject, you learn all of this stuff. But when you act, you kind of have to throw that out and just be in the moment and react. And getting to that state is, is, is the same in martial arts as it is in acting in that, you know, in Zen and Japanese culture, they have a word called myo, M-Y-O, with a little asterisk over it, so it's myo. And it's a long-winded conversation, but trying to paraphrase it, it basically refers to just being in a moment and just doing what you do. And the the examples that Suzuki would give would be like a, and this is a weird thing to get into, but it's like a spider spinning its web. You know, when you watch a spider spinning its web, it's just doing what it does. If the wind comes along and breaks the web and a spider falls down, you can't imagine the spider going, oh, fucking hell, now I've got to start all over again. Shit, you know, all of this. It just goes back to spinning its web because that's what it does, you know, or a beaver building his dam. That's what it does. You know, there's, there seems to be no conscious kind of interaction or thought. It's, it's just doing and... That state of doing is what the samurai tried to get to with this mushin or no mind state where all the all the conscious preparation led to being in combat and just being in a total state of, of being in the moment of mushin, of no mind, of not anticipating, gee, if the sword move off, my opponent strikes here, then I'll block here. Because when you get to that, you form what they call a suke. It's a blockage. It's like running water and you put up a dam and the water doesn't flow anymore that stops that mental flow and this is why you subjected your or, or you're caught with a faint when people do this and suddenly they strike low and all your focus goes into what you think is the intended move and you're caught with something else and this this mob being in the moment is is about uh, you know, there's a couple of stories that you got, Tom, I want to relay. There's, there's one that I I loved when I heard this story about Sir Lawrence Olivier doing a play in London and a lot of his peers were in the audience. And it's something that, you know, as you know, with plays they do for months or sometimes, you know, years. And there's a particular performance that Sir Lawrence Olivier did and the actors that were there and went back and basically they were saying to Sir Lawrence Olivier, oh, 
that was the most amazing performance we'd ever seen, you know, da, 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 you know. And they said something like, how did you do it? And apparently Olivier broke down into tears and they were looking at him and he basically said, you know, when they were asking me, how do you said, I don't know. I don't know what I did. And why it upset him was he was almost in his mind, could he ever recreate that same, that muir, that same moment again? I think it was a perfect example of somebody's done it over and over, just happened to be in this total moment of unconsciousness where he just mm, mm. displayed his craft and his art. Yeah, and I think and that, get, that gets misinterpreted. I mean, I, I, I practice Zen Buddhism as well, but that form of meditation I practice is Zen based as well. And, and I, th- from and I've taught meditation and yoga and and that idea of no mind often gets misinterpreted. I find people people think that 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 it's it it refers to a lack of awareness when in fact it's the complete opposite of that. It's total aware. It's total and utter awareness in the present moment, and 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 it allows you to. So that can be confusing for people when they hear this kind of idea of no mind. You're like, well, it's it's no conscious. Uh, those blockages uh, are what get in the way. But when you're fully present in the moment, your awareness is razor sharp. Actually, you can you can smell every smell. You can see every every color. Uh, it doesn't necessarily get retained. You see it all the time. You know, in the UFC post fight, they say, "Oh, I don't remember anything that happened. I have to go back and watch the tape." Yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, but. You know what's fascinating is that, you know, with this, this being in the moment, they, they talk about like there's a, there's a creator kind of improv, you know, where you're kind of creating. But again, I, I still for me, all of that comes out of knowing your craft, as it were. Yes. You know, I, I don't think anybody can pick up a, chord, a guitar and just without any training know all the chords, for instance. Mm. You know, you... You know, everybody learns piano, learns the same notes, the same scales. They learn to play eventually a song that somebody else has composed. The ultimate expression and the individual expression is when they take all those fundamentals and they create their own music, you know. Mm. Martial arts, I think, is the same where you take all those fundamental blocks and tracks and kicks. But when you spar, it becomes your individual expression of all those fundamentals. And... I love another story that I've often told when I was on tour with Linda Ronstadt and she had this, um, there was, she was doing all the Mexican love songs, songs of my father, she called it because her father was, you know, of Mexican heritage and she was d- doing the songs anyway. They, she had this band, you know, one of the top mariachi bands out of Mexico City and these guys were absolute rebel rousers. I mean, they chased women, they drank, you know, till there was no tomorrow. Anyway, one of one of the the band members was a gentleman that was supposedly one of the last two living masters of the Mexican harp, and it was a big wooden harp. And I was out, you know, and I'm paraphrasing. I was out in the dressing room area before a show one day, and I. And I, I'm sure his name was Pepe. I always laugh, Pepe, that figure's right, being Mexican. But um, I said, you know, play, play me a little bit of that harp, you know. And he was like, oh, no, 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 you know, all this sort of stuff, being his normal self. With a little bit of convincing, he agreed to play some. And I still remember this day the, the feeling I had watching. It was 
such an example of this muir that I'm talking about because he picked up the harp and he just, he had this little sort of smile on his face, but rather than creating, he was now the witness mm -hmm. of, it was like he was just watching his hands, smiling and appreciating this music and these notes that were being produced with no appeared, well, didn't appear to be any conscious thought of what he was doing. He was just doing, mm -hmm. which gets back for me an example of a spider spinning its web or a bird building its nest. It was just doing what it does. And I remember thinking, no wonder he's a master of, of the heart. I still believe it came out of, of multiple years yeah, of yeah. learning mm -hmm. notes, chords and everything else to get to the stage where he could throw it out and just play. And I never forgot that feeling. And and another example used to be when I was on tour with, say, James Taylor. So many times the best part of the tour was with a sound check and the musicians would be doing a sound check and one of them would just start playing a little guitar riff and then, the, you know, uh, Russ Kunkel on drums would start kicking in with the drums and then the bass, Lee Sklar would start playing bass and they would just, as you know, just jam. Mm. And it was purely improvised and I thought, ah, oh, that's it too, you know. Mm. It was an amazing thing because it was just, they were just doing, they were just displaying their craft completely in the moment, almost witnessing their expertise as opposed to that look of conscious creation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And is this what you refer to? I mean, I've, talk, I've heard you, we've had long conversations about this in the mm. past and I've heard you talk at length about this, the idea of the art in martial arts and how... Um, I know you're very passionate about the fact that that often in modern some forms of modern martial arts that there's more focus on the martial and less on the arts and it, it, it seems to me as though what you're talking about here is the aspect of the martial arts that is that creative artistic expression um, that is in the name itself and it's it's obviously something you've you've been a proponent of your entire career whether even though you've trained in various different forms. I know that you bring that sense of artistry and creativity to the way you interpret that form. Uh, is is that your kind of take on what the arts means in martial arts? Yeah, I, I look, I, you know, there was a friend of mine, Rodney King, who's South African, who did a little podcast on this once, and he really hit the nail on the head with what we're talking about in that he felt, as I do, that a lot of, martial arts today there's there's a there's a real um emphasis on the martial but not nearly enough on the art and this is where the yin and yang the balance comes in that you have you know a lot of the martial meaning the combative aspects of the art and this punch will do that that kick will do this this weapon will do that the art side of it is really the balance, you know, it's it's in the samurai, for instance, you know, the samurai weren't just versed in the sword, you know, they were also masters in Chanayu, you know, this sort of poetry and uh, and and the tea ceremony and et cetera, et cetera. In other words, very gentlemanly aspects of being a human being where there was a balance. 
you know, the tea ceremony is a much about escaping that mindset of constant sort of constantly being in battle where they could go into an environment where it was about simplicity, about the breath. It was about just listening to the boiling water. It's about having a flower in the room, not a bunch, but just a single flower because they theorize that a bunch of flowers meant you missed, often missed the individual beauty mm. of a flower. So that sort of simplicity and balance, I believe, made them all rounded people, you know, rather than, again, just being focused on the combative and the warlike aspects of what they did. And I think this is where it gets down to character. You know, a lot of sports and everything are very much about the actual physical prowess. You know, if you're a cricketer, it's getting that, hitting the wickets and getting somebody out. If you're a batter, it's hitting a six. And I'm not saying there isn't, an, uh, there isn't, you know, what a lot of sports people emphasize, but I don't believe to the same degree as martial arts, where martial arts is as much about character building. It's about morality, integrity, and having honor. And, and that battle within oneself, not just about winning for the sake of winning. So the art gave you that balance. And, and Benny Okidas, you know, gave a great little uh, analogy for me on that, where he said, when we teach martial arts, if all you do is teach elbows and how to choke somebody unconscious or leg kick the crap out of them, if you don't balance it with the bowing and the meditation and and that that aspect of the arts he said he said what we're doing is teaching people to, we're giving them bits of metal and bits of plastic and we're teaching them how to make a handgun eventually we're teaching them how to put bullets in that handgun you know with the techniques we're teaching them if we don't balance that with the art or the oversight of of respect and integrity and everything else we're basically putting loose cannons out in the street and these these are very dangerous people mm. and i think that's that's the whole idea of the martial and the art it's about that individual development like for instance doing kata doing forms people say oh what the hell's the point of that you know but it's about that personal sort of perfection that that perfection of movement that the perfection of the self that had nothing to do with an opponent or anybody else it's just an expression of mental and physical and spiritual that all come into one that are all unified with you on the floor by yourself expressing yourself in the most excellent manner possible and and that's that's what we're talking about with martial arts rather than just being a sportsman, like a lot of footballers, they play football and you're amazing. But once the competitive years are over, it's kind of it. You know, you see them get out of shape. It's, all, it's also outcome driven. You know, they're all about the outcome. You, it's about performance. Yeah, it's about of, the winning. It's yeah. about, mm. yes. And and the difference with martial arts, I, I would hope, is that, you know, it, that we can be martial artists when we're 80, 90 and 100, you know, because mm. it's, it's not about the winning so much, it's about the development of the self. And Helio Gracie was an example of that to me. Helio Gracie is like one of the godfathers of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I love telling the story of Horian Gracie, Helio's son, saying that when his father, at 94 years of age, Helio was still doing his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu drills with his sons on a daily basis. He died at 95. And I remember thinking, God, how good is that, that at 94, he's still totally involved in a daily basis in his life's passion. Mm. That's, that's the art. He couldn't have gone out and beaten the competitive blue belt at mm. 94, even though he was a master. But who cares? You mm. know, he's still 
involved with himself in his art and he's passionate at that age and mm. I said that, that's what it's all about it's not just about the winning it's about the involvement mm. you know in, in a mental and a physical and spiritual sense it's a and way yeah. of life a way of being and I, I can remember you know when I started Zendikai as a 12, 13 year old, that was one of the first things that we were told was, you know, we're going to teach you these techniques that are going to, you're going to know how to hurt people and you have to you have to vow right now that you know, you're only going to use them when necessary. We were taught the, the responsibility and the respect that came with it. And I guess when, you know, martial arts got turned into a, a spectator sport, um, you know, and the, the emergence of the UFC, it became about money, hype, selling a fight. I guess they took a lot from the boxing world and you get people like Conor McGregor and for a lot of young kids now, that's their, that's their visual of what a martial artist looks like. Um, do you find in the, in the sort of world of traditional martial artists and, and purists who, who, who see it more as a, as a set of values and personal attributes, there's any resistance to people like that being called martial artists? And do you think that in some ways the UFC is sort of killing traditional martial arts? Oh, that's a difficult one. I think there's there's a whole mix in there. You know, I think people like a George St. Pierre, you know, with the traditional martial arts background, a BJ Penn, I think there's still the art in them, the martial artist. Look, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, you know, it's a UFC again, it's consensual sparring, it's like boxing, like that. It's 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 got incredible economic returns and so there's always going to be an avenue for that there's always an avenue for kids they're always going to watch things that just basically um you know clamber their senses with with visions of what they could be themselves it is a shame i i i do wish like i was very disappointed in that last fight with connor you know in the post fight i get them all talking smack and everything else leading up it gives you that psychological edge, you know, and, and into that arena you're about to jump in, which is about winning. It's not about getting your head punched in, that's for sure. But I do wish post-fight that that they would display sportsmanship or, or, or the art side where, and he usually does, you know, but I was disappointed in the, you know, the comments he made about Poirier's wife and everything else. Yeah. I thought that set a very, very poor example for kids out there because, you know, this is the thing about being a role model. You know, Connor or, or any of those guys might say, well, I, I didn't choose to become a role model. But when you reach the heights of your particular careers as in, in fighting like they do, you're a role model whether you like it or not, you know. It's like a Jean-Claude Van Damme or a Steven Seagal. You know, they're, they're role models whether they like it or not, and I believe there's a certain obligation to behave, you know, as, as an, an artist, you know. You know, it's not about it's not about just the performance. It's really about behaviour, you know, when you're not in the ring. You know, I, I have a saying that it, what's most important to me is not the two hours on the mat, it's the 22 hours off the mat, is how are you as a human being? How do you interact with your friends, your family, with everybody else when you go out? You know, do you have manners and everything? And do you have integrity and do you have honour? That's such an important thing, I think, for sports people that are in the limelight. They should should take that on and, and understand that, again, as I keep saying, they're a role model for these kids, whether they like it or not. They will be emulated. They will be imitated. And it's very important to, to be aware of the effect that they're going to have on a young, growing sort of mind, whether it's female or, or male. 
I have to know? say, Richard, that's one of the things that, and having known you for many years now, and you display all of those things as a as a man, as a as a person, and the conversations that we've had uh, off the mat. You know, when we were training for Fury Road and and stuff, I, I just knew straight away the the how you spoke and how you conducted yourself as a gentleman off the mat was so impressive. It was equally as impressive as the the knowledge and the technique that you were showing us in class. And, and, and it's really is a testament to you as a, as a well-rounded artist um, and, per, and, and person. It, it really does come through and I'm sure it comes through in team Norton in, in the, in the kind of approach that you take with your own team now and, and, uh, well, we're trying to. We're trying, well, well. Here's the thing. You know, I, would, I say to people that with martial arts, with with being in at 60 years, with teaching it for 50 plus years, I would, I would, I would hesitate to say that that 98 of the people that I've ever taught have never had a street fight in their lives. So, if that is the only purpose of that training, then there's been an incredible waste of time for 98% of the people. So if you're not going to introduce character building and, and everything else and, and aspects that can help you in your everyday life, then what's the point? You mm-hmm. know, and people that say that bowing and showing respect and doing kata, that that's of no use, then I would say, well, then what's the point of yoga? What's the point of golf and hitting a ball into a little hole? That's also pretty useless. There's, there's got to be a lot of other reasons that people undertake these endeavours and and the arts are a chance, you know, to get on the mat to actually show that you can respect the person in front of you with a simple bow, you know. Mm. It's not unlike we would shake hands in a Western sense. It's show respect to the, the, the dojo or the, the, you know, the place you're able to sort of practice your art. All of that is character building and I think that's something we can we can offer to the to you know, the general populace and it's it's just such an important thing. Otherwise, I, I think it's a lot of a waste of time. This Again, this is, gets back to what you asked me about martial and the art. If, if it's all about the combat aspects, you'll probably never get to use it or most yeah. people never will. You hope you won't anyway, which is a damn good thing. So let's let's focus on other areas that will help. You know, well, I used to always say that the dojo is a miniature philosophy of life. You go in, there's hardship, there's pain, there's sweat, there's winning, there's losing. Well, that's what life is. You go into the workplace, you're going to get a problem that maybe your boss gives you that's you can either go, oh, shit, I don't know how to do it, and you can run away from it, or you can go, you know what, I'm going to give this the best effort I can and I'm going to achieve the best result I can. And even if it's not what's expected of me, at least it'll be the learning experience from me. And yeah. all of that is character building. And yeah. this is where the never-ending quest to to be a student comes in. You know, you, mm. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm honoured when people say, oh, you know, you're a master and all this. And I go, well, I, I, I don't like that. I, you know, mastery to me means that you have mastered a particular area of the art and there's no more to learn. When I believe there's always something to learn. I often say I don't want to be the same martial artist I was five years ago or even a year ago. I want to continually try to evolve what I'm doing, the way I express it. It may be by doing that I end up going back to what I did 10 years ago, 
but the continual idea of, of introspection and learning and progression, everything is what it's all about well, too. I think that comes to, from humility and I see that in you. I mean, you're still, I, I saw it the other day, you're still, you, you've been doing a whole series of leg lock training and, and you're still rolling <laughs> around on the mat. And uh, I mean, you know, and, and then the week prior you get, you get, bestowed with a, a tenth dam one of two is it two people in us in in the world yeah that was within Zendikai with with bob jones and like look, that's even that- in, in, incredible and, and the fact that you can go from getting awarded you know a tenth dan black belt and then the next day be kind of on the mat going oh can Testing you teach me skills. can yeah. you <laughs> test me leg locks because i want to i want to improve my uh, leg lock practice and I, d- I just think that's such a that that only comes when you have a level mm. of humility to go, it doesn't matter. Like, yes, I'm respectful and grateful for that honor that you've bestowed on me, but I'm still learning. There's still, I'm still evolving and growing, and uh, you're certainly a, a living example of that. You know. Thank you, and I, 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 you know, I try and say to people, look, if you can, if you can just find what your passion is, and it could be painting, it could be music, whatever it is, find your passion, and once you do, you know, the great thing with what we do with martial arts is. I say to people, you have a chance to learn something new every waking day of your life, should you have the desire. And that's where being a student comes in. Because I, if I, you know, doing the leg locks and everything, leg locks are something that's it's probably a recent, what could I say, innovation of, of jujitsu in that, yes, there were leg locks, there were, you know, straight ankle locks and stuff, but nothing to the degree that it's now become in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu world, you know. Um, it's it's really the last five years that it's got to where it's got in that learning the leg locks from him, it's almost like learning a whole new art. I can't believe how complex it is mm. and how much technique there is. Lucky Giles, you know, is a Melbourne-based uh, friend of mine who's, who's helping with, he's one of the best in the world, you know, at that game. And what I realized, you know, I did a lesson with him again on Wednesday and I come home, I'm like a little kid again. I'm mm. so excited to the aspect of learning something new. And I just hope I never lose that. Mm. I, that's what I mean. I don't want to be the same martial artist I was last year. And by getting with a, with Lucky, I'm continually evolving. I'm still a novice in mm. the leg block game. But that's also exciting because I go, wow, look, look how much more I can learn in this particular yeah. area. How good is that? And it, it, it's just very exciting when, when one can yeah. keep at that, of always being a student, having something new to learn. And by the way, I wanted to also say that, you know, the fear part of it, you know, you said about fear of acting or getting on set or performing. I think that's, that's a fantastic thing that we should not dismiss in that, you know, Gus, Gus Tomato, you know, uh, Tyson's mm. trainer and that was the one, whether he came up with that saying, but, you know, he basically expounded that fear is a friend of extraordinary people, that everybody feels fear. It's what you do with it that makes you extraordinary, mm. that you confront your fears and you do what it takes to allay those fears, you know, hence again, Napoleon saying, mm. you know, Confidence is a factor of preparation. You, 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 it motivates you. I remember uh, Nicole Kidman in an interview I saw many, many years ago saying that every role she takes scares the, the absolute daylights out of her. And she almost won't take a role unless there's an element of fear because that fear motivates her to do more work, to do more character study, to do more backstory and everything else, to try and 
overcome those fears and be a little bit better because if we don't have those fears, then we tend to just like sleepwalk our way through an endeavor. Like, you know, you've seen actors that get to a stage where you know they're just basically taking a paycheck yeah. and just staying in lines and getting career as opposed to somebody who's still passionate about an absolutely artistic expression of the character they've been asked to portray. And I think I think that's important. You would never see like Benny Benny Okita said he never ever got into the ring feeling like he hadn't done his homework, you know, because it was also always fear of that becoming his first loss. Mm. So that fear drove him to train harder, to run more, to be up earlier. Mike Tyson was, remember, he was quoted saying when he's running at two in the morning, why are you out here at two in the morning? He said, because my opponent is probably sleeping. You know what I mean? He was doing that a little bit extra. And I think fear is a part of that. It, it drives you. I still do seminars, you know, where I get 20 people on the mat or with the Chuck Norris convention, I get 200 pe people on the mat. My fear is that, oh, shit, they're all going to be here hoping to see Norton slow down a bit or maybe he's not as fast or whatever. Or I'm thinking, gee, am I going to just not be what I should be? That fear drives me to to research more, to try and update my knowledge base. In other words, to try and be the best example of me that I can be. And that's that's prompted by fear. It's not a bad thing. You mm. wouldn't want to get in the ring, as I said, fight for 10 rounds without being prepared as you mm. could, mm. you know, because of the fear of getting knocked out or losing. Yeah. yeah a big I mean part of it. Yeah, you've got to stay curious and you've got to constantly compete against yourself. And I think the fear is just a, it's a result of doing something courageous. You know, whether you're putting yourself on stage or in a, or in a, in a dojo, in a fight, um, you know, you're, you're in the Coliseum. You're not in the seating banks where it's safe. And not everybody wants to do that. And I think that's, like I say, that's why we're, we're trying to do something extraordinary. And it's a, it's a lifelong and, and pursuit. And we, we and say that now in our practice too. Like we, we, we if it doesn't scare us, then it, it's it's become an indicator for uh, we must we must be on the right track because this is slightly terrifying and we don't know if we could pull this off. And and that that has become this kind of uh, litmus test now to go. Oh, we must be doing something right because it's terrifying. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's what it's all. We need to keep challenging ourselves. You know, there's a book I like to quote called The Critical Path that. Buckminster Fuller was considered yeah. a genius. He came up with a geodesic dome and the mathematical equivalence of synergy, et cetera, et cetera. But he talks about goal setting, which is which is pertinent to what we're talking about in that there's a reason that goals are never as fulfilling as you think they will be, meaning that, say, take me as a karate guy. I live in Croydon, the suburb of Melbourne, and I start training a karate and I think, gee, the Croydon Karate Championship, if I could win that, that would be it. I'd have achieved what I want to achieve. I'd be happy. And so I compete and I win. Suddenly it's like, hmm, gee, now there's a Melbourne Championship. If I could just do that, no, I'd be happy. Wouldn't need to do any more. I win Melbourne and so on and so on. And then I look at the Australian Championships and World. So in other words, the idea that goals are never as fulfilling is about keeping bodies in motion. Buckminster Fuller talks about it's, you know, life and growing and, and expertise and, and excellence is about bodies in motion. Like anything that stops still long enough is probably dead, whether it's a branch, a plant, an animal or a human being. 
it's about movement. So you set a goal and you get to it. The reason it's not as fulfilling is to propel you into setting a new goal mm -hmm. and then a new goal. In other words, it's about keeping bodies in motion. And I think that's what we're talking about, to continually step out of your comfort zone and challenge yourself is what it should be all about. But there's so many that won't, you know, they become armchair experts and they're experts on everything except actually getting up and doing it themselves, yeah. you know. Yep. That's probably a, a good coming. place to uh, wrap things up. We've, we've uh, probably taken uh, more <laughs> of your time. Than, uh, but um, where can people find out if they want to know more about you and uh, and Team Norton and your your kind of practices. Is there somewhere that people can find out more information about that? Yeah, look, you know, you know, I have a Facebook page like everybody does, and Instagram. I do have um, Richard Norton, you know, bjj.com.au. I, you know, I have a, a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Association. I've got you know ten or so clubs that are under me. There's a certain amount of information at richardnorton.bjj.com. Uh, I used to have a website. I'll probably get it up again. I think it became not so necessary anymore with Facebook, yeah. you know, and, and Instagram. But I'm on both of those. And if anyone wants to message me on Facebook, I think it's maxed out as far as French go, but anybody can message me. And if there's a question or an interest in seminars or whatever, they can contact me you know, by, by a messenger on Facebook or or on Instagram. Um, and when are you going to start a BJJ school in Queensland, mate? So I can train up here on the under. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, I've, I've got a, I've got a sixteen month old daughter that I want to I want to start. If you if you take them uh, that young, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you. I'm going to be up there very soon. You know, I've got a couple of friends at, with Zendikai clubs, of course, and I'm going to come up and do some seminars up there. I still love the seminar circuit. It's a little bit of what I said that. By 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 at my stage of the game, you know, arranging seminars, it motivates me because suddenly it gives me a kick in the ass to be physically fit and physically able to demonstrate and teach and everything else. And that's it's a performance in itself too. I mean, you have to perform in front of all these people. Yeah, and, and everybody, you know, everybody's judging you, and that's okay. You know, that's a good thing, and it just motivates me. So anyway, look, I really appreciate the conversation with you guys. Hopefully we didn't just ramble on, but no, it's no, a it's, huge honor. Yeah, Richard. Total honor. It's a really, really, really appreciate your time and, and your passion for not just martial arts and film, but for life in general. And, and I think that's what's always drawn me to you as a, as a man, as a gentleman. And, uh, and it's something that, um, yeah, I, I, I'm glad we were able to share this with other people as well. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I've got to just finish, Sam. The same thing applied, and I, I remember remarking this to Judy, and you wouldn't even be aware of it, but you were you were running some yoga classes for us, you know, for uh, Fury Road, and I remember, you know, what struck me is this is something that I, I'm going to quickly in, in inject about Lockie Giles, why I like Lockie and the leg locks. He's one of the best in the world, but you would never know it. He doesn't. He doesn't tout his own horn. He doesn't say, oh, I'm this and I beat this person. He just does, you know. And you see it, the excellence comes out when he starts teaching people. And, you know, I've experienced that with him. And I remember that with you. I remember the yoga that you were, you were showing, like, different, you know, positions and everything else. And there was a couple of times when you got asked a question about a particular, you know, what do you call it? An asana. asana yeah. you know, yeah. 
and suddenly you, you I think it was um, the is it the royal pigeon or something? Is that is that an asana called something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, that's a p- and, pigeon and, pose. Yeah, like king. Yeah, pigeon, and, yeah. And, but you were you were you were demonstrating something similar, and then somebody asked you about it, and you suddenly demonstrated such an advanced example of this particular posture where I went. Fuck me! Look at that. You know how good is that? And it was a it was a position that I could never get into myself. You know, and and it's it it was a really good thing, Sam, because with all the classes you were doing, you were always teaching at the level of the people in the class. It wasn't about gee, Sam Foster showing how good he is at yoga, and it was only when you were encouraged with a question to show a more advanced version that you then just sprouted, you know, and, and, and showed this position and the excellence of, of which you had taken your yoga. And I was very, very impressed with that. So oh. I just had to throw that in. Thanks, man. That's nice, uh, nice to hear. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. It's, it's the understatedness of, of people that are great at what they do that is, is what makes it so attractive to me anyway. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Well, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Talking At Your Arts. Uh, yeah, and uh, much, much appreciated. Thanks, Richard. The journey, the journey continues. Indeed. Thank you, lads. Go well. Good. See you later. Thanks Bye. for that, Rich. Appreciate it, mate.